Well, good morning to everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all, and uh, to all the fathers here, happy Father's Day. Uh, I hope you enjoy your socks and ties that you will receive today. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's, it's good to see you all here. I think most of you know me by now. Uh, my name is David, and I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, so if you have preteens or teens, I've definitely interacted with you before. And if I have not, feel free to come and say hi to me. Um, but yeah, so today, uh, during the summer, uh, New Life goes through a series in the Psalms. Uh, and today we find ourselves in Psalm 97, as Robin just read for us. And Psalm 97 is a, a majestic psalm, which sings of God's glory and greatness, uh, nestled among its neighbors, uh, all of them sing the praises of God's rule over his people, over his creation. Um, and I think most of us, if you know, we're here since the last time we assembled, we've probably faced some kind of discouragement this week, something that just was unexpected, uh, something that you know, we weren't ready for, and that could be different for all of us, whether that's difficulty in being a parent, you know, maybe there's some difficulty at your job. For all the students in here, I'm sure you're disappointed that school is done with. And you're like, wow, I can't believe I just have a few months of doing whatever I want. But life just keeps coming at all of us, right? But as believers, as we read the psalm, we, we find ourselves awaiting the return of a great king, and we find our strength in knowing that our God rules over everything. We know that this part of God's story isn't the end of the story. There is coming a time when God will return, and both creation and his people will rejoice together. So we can rejoice in all seasons, because our God reigns. And so as we begin... It is all right. So we begin, you know, uh, when movies want to show the grandness of an event, they usually pan out to show the scene as much as possible. Uh, you think about the end of Lord of the Rings, uh, where, you know, all the armies are gathered together, good versus evil, and you just get to see uh, the numerous hordes of the good guys versus the bad guys. Uh, you know, you see this in a lot of the Marvel movies when they just show, you know, like Infinity War, they show all the Avengers, they show all the bad guys. And the reason they're doing this is to show you just the grand scope of what you're about to see. To see that this is, isn't gonna be uh, like any of the other battles. It's gonna be something big. It's a, it's a bird's eye view, uh, so you can appreciate it. And so Psalm 97 begins with a similar view of the coming of the Lord. We begin with a proclamation of God's rule. Then we see how heaven and the earth react. And then finally we zoom down into the perspective of how humanity, both believers and unbelievers, will react to the coming of this great king. So the psalm begins with the glorious proclamation of the Lord reigns. 
Benjamin Franklin once said, nothing is certain in life except death and taxes. A dreary worldview that would drag any of us into madness, that was all we had in this life. But the psalm presents a third certainty, and that's that the Lord reigns. And this gets us to the heart of the Christian message. The Lord reigns, and there is nothing on earth or in heaven that would change this fact. It is absolute truth. The one who created all things, the one who spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who delivered Israel from Egypt, who gave the Israelites land flowing with milk and honey, he reigns on the throne, and therefore all people are called to rejoice and be glad. And so the people of God can rejoice in knowing that their God reigns on high, but this invitation isn't just limited to the Israelites. It's not just limited to the people of the Old Testament. The coastlands, it says, can be glad. And so this was a way to refer to the nations that had been divided from Israel, the people who weren't part of the covenant. They too are invited to come and join in worship of this great God. And so in this, we see a picture of a glorious king who desires relationship, not just with one group of people, but with all of his creation. This rejoicing over the Lord's reign is a call to the entire earth. And today we are here gathered because this message extended to the furthest coastlands. The truth of God's rule reached our corner of the earth. And now we too can rejoice and gather and proclaim the absolute truth that the Lord reigns. And so the next few verses then describe uh, this great king. It says clouds and thick darkness are all around him. And for an Israelite hearing the psalm, it would bring up a couple of images. There are a couple places in the Old Testament where darkness and clouds are associated with God's presence. The first is Genesis 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham. And verse 12 there, 15, 12, says that a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And in the midst of those thick clouds, God promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's offspring. The second time we see this cloud and darkness is when God appears on Mount Sinai to the people. Exodus 19:16 describes a thick cloud on the mountain. And then later on, Exodus 20, 21, says that Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Both of these were crucial moments in Israelite history, moments when God spoke directly to his representatives to make a covenant with them or to give them the law which would govern his people. And so the cloud and the thick darkness, this imagery would remind those who listen to the psalm about God's faithfulness to his people from generations past. The same God who appeared to Abram and promised him descendants as numerous as the stars is the same God who rules. The same God who came down to the people in unapproachable darkness is the same one who is still worthy of praise. And as we think about these clouds and we thick darkness, it's like, well, hold on, what's happening? Isn't, isn't God light? Isn't he approachable? 
But you see these clouds and thick darkness that he comes in, they aren't for God's protection. He's not trying to hide from us. They're for our protection. Will we see his full glory in our sinful state? We would perish at the sight. And so God covers himself in darkness. They also serve as a warning to the presumptuous person who would think they can understand the mysteries of God fully. His holiness is worthy of our full adoration. And yet God condescends to us and hides himself in the clouds so that we may come close. The psalm goes on to say that, uh, uh, yeah, continuing in verse 2, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And so this is a comforting thought for us. Unlike many human governments, God's rule isn't based on wickedness. It's not based on a grab for power. It's not based in deception. It's based on righteousness and justice. We live in a world that hungers and thirsts for justice. Though we here in Portland, we see it on the daily. We see it displayed in signs everywhere. No justice, no peace. Its voice is crying out for justice in a world where, in a world where the wicked seem to prosper. But the utopia that people are looking for, the peace that they desire, it's found only in the kingdom of God. And so this is the invitation that we should be extending to the people around us. In the midst of this dark world, we can say, look, here's a kingdom where righteousness and justice are found. Here's a king who is not swayed by wicked advice. Here are the people who do justice and love goodness and walk humbly with their God. And so this is one more reason why the earth can rejoice that the Lord reigns. Because where he reigns, justice and righteousness are found. And so the next few verses show us the unstoppable and glorious might of the Lord. He comes as the one who cannot be stopped by anyone. Now, if you know me, you know that one of my favorite movies is Avengers Infinity War. It's a great movie. I saw it at least five times in theaters, and <laughs> I tend to watch it whenever I'm packing for a trip. Just, I've seen it so much, you know, I can follow it along with just the dialogue. Um, but one of my favorite moments there is towards the end when Thanos, the bad guy, big bad guy, uh, finally steps on the scene on Earth. And all the Avengers see him. And they do their best to try to stop him. And what happens? He swats them aside easily, like nothing. Earth's mightiest heroes are powerless to stop him. All they do is slow him down. And so, you know, in typical youth pastor, now I got to say, but you know who's greater than Thanos? And you all know the answer. God's power is described on levels unimaginable to us. We, who are we to be able to stop the coming of the Lord? It says that fire goes up before him and burns his adversaries. Usually one of those characteristics we don't like to think about. But if God's throne is built on righteousness and justice, that means justice must be dealt to those who remain in their wickedness. All around us, we see people stuck and clinging to their sins. People adamant that they can live their lives free of God. People who openly 
defy God and challenge his power. And for thousands of years, we have seen God deal patiently with them. We see how he calls all men to repentance. He has allowed evil to continue, even as a righteous wonder when the moment of salvation will come. See, God's mercy and love is, uh, and his love for his creation is extended every day that evil is not judged in its completeness. But there will come a day in history when God will make his visible return in the person of the Son. And on that day, righteousness and justice shall be established and the enemies of God will perish before him. Next, we see how both heaven and earth are witness to the coming of this great God. It says his lightning uh, light up the world. And so this fire and the lightning they also remind us of what happened on Sinai. When God came to Mount Sinai, the people of Israel feared the great power that was on the mountain. The darkness of the clouds, the fire and the lightning that emerged from there, the presence of God, it was too much for the people. They dared not go up, and so they sent Moses to go into the clouds alone. So it shall be with us when God returns. The return of the sun, it will be something magnificent. The last view that all unbelievers had of Jesus was that of a failed Messiah. One who dared to claim the title of the Son of God and for his blasphemy was condemned to hang on a tree, a symbol of God's judgment upon him. But believers know that the story didn't end there. We know that Jesus rose after three days, conquering the death and grave. And he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And when he comes back, when he comes back, his return will be no secret. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. When he returns, it will be as a conquering lion of Judah, as a victorious son of David who will sit on the throne forever, as a vindicated one claiming his inheritance. And so verse 5 says, The earth will tremble before him, the mountains will melt like wax. It's a glorious sight. Mountains are some of the sturdiest things we can imagine. We can look out our windows and we see Mount Hood standing proudly in the distance. We can see it in its full glory. And when we go there to hike or snowboard or kayak or whatever it is, we have no fear that it will fall under our feet. It's not like mountains do that. Mountains cannot be moved. And yet when the Lord returns, that mountain will melt like wax before him. He is the Lord of all the earth and the earth will testify to his greatness. Not just the earth, but the psalmist says that the heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all peoples see his glory. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper has a famous quote where he says, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. 
And so we see that sentiment here. Not just the earth will be witness to the return of this great king, but the heavens will also be witnesses. They will proclaim the righteousness of the one who reigns. And all people will see his glory. When Christ returns in power and glory, there won't be anybody left in the dark. There won't be any person who can feign ignorance. His return will be majestic and powerful. When a lion roars, all who hear it stand in silence. And when the lion of Judah returns and utters his roar, there will not be none who will be able to speak louder than him. There will be no power able to stand against him. There will be nobody to dare challenge his authority. Verse 7 says, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. All who place other gods before Yahweh himself will be put to shame when the sun returns. All who put their confidence in anything other than Yahweh will be left with nothing on that great and final day. In the time of David and the kings, God had, you know, quote unquote, challengers to his authority Baal, Molech, Dagon, Asherah, Ra, multitudes of gods and goddesses in the culture surrounding the Israelites. Multitudes of nations who said their gods were greater. But none of them could ever compete with God's power when the challenge arose. One by one, God defeated the powers of Egypt as he brought down the ten plagues upon Egypt, humiliating the gods. Dagon was brought down, prostrate, and cut into pieces before the Ark of the Covenant. Baal could do nothing as his 450 prophets sought to get him to bring down the fire. All were powerless before the might of the one true God. And as the gospel spreads, as God's kingdom spreads, it points to the powerlessness of the gods in every other nation. Zeus, Odin, Anansi, none of them have been able to stand up to the power of the gospel. Today, we also have different gods and goddesses in our lives, different objects of power that we seek to worship, fame, wealth, influence. Those seeking these things above the uh, kingdom of God will find that it will do nothing for them when the sun returns. The one whose name will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth and who has a host of angels who cry out, holy, 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 day and night, has no need to be impressed by the fame of others. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and who supplies for his people every day cannot be bought by the wealth that he has made. Apart from, the, from faith in the saving work of Jesus, there is nothing that will allow you to enter the kingdom. Those who spent their lives seeking after power, riches, or fame will find themselves put to shame as they realize they spent their lives seeking after vanity. And so just as every movie has that epic scene that shows a great bird's eye view, so too do they then swoop down to show you the more personal view, to show you how the protagonists are affected. 
So the psalm zooms in to show us the close-up of the people's reaction when the Lord returns. Verse 8, Zion hears and is glad. The return of Jesus will be seen by every eye on heaven and earth. But those who will be glad will be the people of God himself. Zion represents all who have trusted in God. God's people will rejoice. The daughters of Judah will rejoice. Why? Because of your judgments, O Lord, it says. The people of God can delight in God's judgment because they point to God's goodness. From the moment that Abel's life was taken by his brother until the present day, God's people have cried out for justice. Habakkuk wrestled with the problem of evil thousands of years ago. Peter showed that even in his time, men already scoffed at the return of Jesus since everything seemed to be the same. For millennia, God's people have wrestled with the problem of evil. The wicked seem to prosper while the righteous suffer through this world. And there are times when we may come to this place where we wonder, is all of this worth it? Wouldn't it be easier to go with the flow of the world and what this life has to offer? But Scripture offers us hope for those of us waiting in silence for the return of the Lord. God's judgments on evil are worthy of praise because we are reminded that the foundation of God's throne are righteousness and justice. Therefore, no judgment that he passes will be flawed. No sentence that he carries out will be wrong. The judge of all the earth shall do no wrong. He who searches the hearts of men shall not be guilty of impartiality. In Revelation 15, shortly before the final plagues are unleashed upon earth, we see the scene in the heavens where the people of God sing out the song of Moses saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God's people can rejoice in his judgments on evil because it will vindicate the righteous. It will be the moment when true justice is enacted upon the earth, when righteousness comes upon us. The one who judges is the Lord most high over all the earth, the one who is exalted far above all other gods. There is no one who can challenge his authority, no one who can lay claim to his throne, no one who even dares come close to his holiness, his power, and his might. And so the people of God can endure anything that comes our way in this lifetime because we know that this great and powerful God is on our side. He is our defender. He fights for us. Verse 10 continues to say, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked. We've seen how the return of Jesus will be good news to all who trust in him. And so the psalmist exhorts the people of God to wait patiently. And in the meantime, here are our instructions 
those of us who love the Lord must hate evil. The Bible has revealed to us God's wisdom. It's revealed to us God's standards for good and for bad. And so what God calls good, we must not call evil. What society calls good, we cannot call good if God has called it evil. We must fight against evil in whatever way that looks like for our time and our age. Every generation has their battle to wage. But we can trust that God is with us in that. Verse 10 continues to say he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked. Many of us have seen in our lifetime how God has delivered us from the hands of those who would seek our downfall. How God has delivered us from situations that seemed drastic, that seemed like there was no hope. And yet God has pulled us out of that. But we can also look at other believers around the world and we see how their lives are destroyed by the wicked. And so we come, as we come to this, we wonder, is, well, is this a lie? When we see that Christians and other nations are being killed for the name of God, how can we say that he preserves the lives of his saints? Matthew 10, 28 reminds us to not fear the one who can kill the body, or, yeah, not fear the one who can kill the body, but not the soul. The life of a Christian is one of daily crucifying our desires. Following Jesus may mean that you have to give up the pride and anger you struggle with. It may mean you have to cut off family connections to follow Jesus. It may mean you are shunned by those that you love the most. And in the most extreme cases, there are believers who are called to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior and be martyred for their faith. We here in the United States have the blessing of living in a nation where freedom of religion is allowed. We don't step out and fear that somebody will kill us for our beliefs. But many do not have that same privilege. And for them, choosing to follow Christ means that they may, they may also give up what is precious to all of us, our lives. And yet, even in that, we find comfort knowing, as Luther proclaimed in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, this truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. God will preserve the lives of his saints, even in martyrdom, because we know that death does not have the final say in our lives. The grave is not our final destination. We have the hope that we will be raised up in glorified bo- into glorified bodies. We have the hope that the moment our final breath leaves our bodies in this life, our eyes will open up to see our master smiling at us, welcoming us into his eternal kingdom. We are a people who have been delivered from death, from sin, from Satan. Though our bodies may be killed, it is the Lord who preserves our souls. It is the Lord who holds us close, even in our darkest moments. And so we have the absolute truth that one day 
We will receive these glorified bodies that will never be killed again. We will be delivered from all wickedness. Psalm continues by saying, Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. And so the coming of our King should give us great joy. It should be like when you see the dawn coming at the end of a long night. I went camping a couple years ago, and it was one of the worst experiences of my life. (laughs) Originally, I was supposed to have a tent to myself. Uh, One of my friends was very confident in his abilities to sleep in his truck. Uh, And then he said, I can't do it. And so the two of us shared a two-person tent, but it was very crowded in there. And he was able to just fall asleep so quickly. Within two minutes, his snores were heard. I could not sleep. I just kept hearing that. On top of that, I discovered that I have a little bit of claustrophobia. (laughs) I would fall asleep for a short period of time and then wake up and just see utter darkness. And I knew that the tent was inches away from me, and I was in a sleeping bag. And on top of that, I was also sealed inside a tent. And I started to panic a little. And what if the air ran out? And then I started thinking about Pearl Harbor and people try, you know, it was just. <laughs> I quickly clawed my way out of the tent. I found the zipper. Uh, I was also trying to save my phone's battery, so I didn't know what time of night it was. That was the longest night of my life. Uh, <laughs> but when dawn came, I rejoiced because I knew everybody else would soon be up. And then we could go home, and I could actually sleep. Uh, So yeah, that moment that sun came up, I was like, praise God. Uh, If anybody wants to give me a better camping experience, you are welcome to do so. But in this way, it shall be for God's people. Light will come after a long period of darkness. We can wait and rejoice for the long night to be over knowing that dawn shall soon arise, and with it will come a day that will never end. We wait for the Lord with joy in our hearts. And so the psalm ends with an exhortation to rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Regardless of our life circumstances, Regardless of whatever may be happening in the world around us, we can rejoice in God himself. We can rejoice not just for what God has done for us, but simply for who God is. We rejoice in knowing that he is a God who is full of love, who is full of mercy, that he is a God who is three times holy, that he is a God who delights in communion with his people, that he is a God whose throne is built on righteousness and justice. We rejoice that he is a God who sent his son down to live as a human, to live the perfect life and die for our sins. We can give thanks that Jesus did all that was necessary for us to be able to be reconciled to the Father. 
We give thanks not only that Jesus died, but that he resurrected, that he ascended, that we have a Savior who sits on the throne. And in all times and in all circumstances, we can rejoice in the Lord. Our challenges here in the United States are quite different from the challenges that the Old Testament saints had. But the truth still stands. You may be going through heartbreak, but you can still rejoice in the Lord. You may be facing job loss and uncertainty of the future, but you can still rejoice in the Lord. You may have gotten a diagnostic you didn't want to hear from the doctor, but you can still rejoice in the Lord. Whatever it is, we can rejoice in the Lord because we know that there is nothing that is outside of his control. There is no area of our life where he is not king. So if you're here and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet, I urge you to submit to King Jesus and enter into this kingdom. We know that life is hard. We know that sometimes it seems as though darkness will never end. But we here gathered can rejoice in the Lord because we know the truth that he reigns. And one day that great king will return to reclaim what is rightfully his and restore all things. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, no mourning, for everything will be restored, and our God shall dwell with his people forever. This is the good news of the kingdom. Jesus reigns. Let us rejoice, and let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that you are a God who has come down among us. He has not left us in our sins but who has come to restore us. And Lord, just as saints of every generation have done, we pray for your return. We pray for the day when you will come and make all things new, when everything will be as it should have been in the beginning. Lord, as we wait, we pray that our hearts may be full of joy, that we may wait for you with great expectation. But as we wait that we may also seek to love you, to do what is right in your eyes, and to invite others into this great kingdom of yours. Father, be with us this week. May our hearts be strengthened by your word and by the fellowship that we have with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.